Jesus Culture, where we discuss Jesus and His Word at the intersection of culture. Thank you so much for joining our first podcast effort. I really hope to be able to do this regularly. Um, in this episode, today we are going to be looking at a question, or discussing a question, is record godlessness in the United States good news? Well, according to Phil Zuckerman, a sociology professor at Pitcher College in Claremont, California, it is good news. He wrote an op-ed piece for the Los Angeles Times two days before Christians celebrated Resurrection Sunday. Seems as though Tommy wasn't a coincidence. His article was entitled, Why America's Record Godliness is in the United States is Good News. And it was another atheist point of view regarding their way being the best way. But of course, when they do that, it is an arrogant and exclusive. It's just the facts. Well, as a fierce supporter of the First Amendment, I support both the LA Times right and Professor Zuckerman's right to state their opinions, which is sort of an anomaly these days. Um, I have a, to state his thesis, I have a re- relatively long quote, but I, I want to keep in context. So here it is. Here is Pastor, uh, Professor Zuckerman's thesis. Quote, democratic societies that have experienced the greatest degrees of secularization are among the healthiest, wealthiest, and safest in the world, enjoying relatively low rates of violent crime, high degrees of well-being and happiness. Clearly, a rapid loss of religion does not result in societal ruin. He then goes on to state that the church is shrinking in America and gives some, some notable reasons, such as organic secularization can occur for many reasons. It happens when members of a society become better educated, more prosperous, and live safer, more secure, and more peaceful lives. When societies experience increases in social isolation, when people have better health care, when more women hold paying jobs, when more people wait longer to get married and have kids, all of these, especially in combination, can decrease religiosity. Another major factor is the ubiquity of the internet, which provides open windows and alternative worldviews in diff- different cultures that can corrode religious conviction. It allows budding skeptics and nascent free th- thinkers to find support and encourage one another. In the United States, these factors are further compounded by strong backlashes against the religious right, the Evangelical Republican Alliance, and the conservative religion's anti-gay agenda and the Catholic Church's sexual abuse scandals. I know that quote was long, but I wanted really to give you the context, uh, not put words in the good professor's mouth. I will say in the professor's desire to seem tolerant, he, doesn't, he does note that atheistic totalitarian regimes such as the Soviet Union, who legislated anti-God and anti-religious policies, were wrong and do not work. He writes this, quote, The former Soviet Union was a communist country, deeply rooted in atheism, and was one of the most corrupt, bloody regimes of the 20th century. Thank you for that. Yet he sees no connection between their worldview and the atrocities they heaped on humanity in the 20th century. No one likes to admit that their own worldview might be the problem, but we like writing op-eds and creating narratives that make other worldviews the boogeyman. No, Dr. Zuckerman poses a nicer, more tolerant narrative, except, of course, the ubiquitous patronizing sentiment that when people get educated, they become nicer, more tolerant, and less religious, because we all know only uneducated morons believe in God. I guess the educated scientists that developed the science around the negation of Africans as real people during slavery and fueled the Third Reich were good for the world? Hmm. Let's take a look at what I mean here. 
First, the negation of Africans. In an article facing, from Facing History in Our Cells on the, on the science of race, the writer writes this, quote, The work of important scientists like Samuel Morton gave racism legitimacy. Journalists, teachers, and preachers began to popularize their findings. Historian Reginald Horseman, who studied the leading publications of the Times, notes, One did not have to read obscure books to know that the Caucasians were innately superior and that they were responsible for civilization in the world, or to know that the inferior races were destined to be overwhelmed or even to disappear. What's interesting, he goes on to write this, quote, Not surprisingly, those who questioned scientists like Morton were ignored or marginalized. Hmm. German professor Friedrich Tiedemann attempted to replicate Morton's work during this period, but could not reproduce the results. He also found no evidence for the racial hierarchy a kind of racial ladder in which Caucasians always stood at the top and Africans at the bottom. That that Morton had claimed to uncover. Tiedemann's work did not attract much attention. It was largely ignored or dismissed as unscientific. So there we have it. Scientists were, or at least fueled, some of the aspects of racism during slavery. Another scientific-minded influence was James Hunt, the founder of the Anthropological Society in London, wrote quite a bit about the races, including this, quote, I have never, I have, however, some three years ago made what I then believed and still believe to be a fair deduction on this subject in these words, that there is as good reason for classifying the Negro as a distinct species from the European as there is for making the ass a distinct distinct species from the zebra. And if, in classification, we take intelligence into consideration, there is a far greater difference between the Negro and the European than between the gorilla and the chimpanzee. Now, when the American church supported slavery, which we are told so often it did, and that was the cause of slavery, uh, we don't usually talk about scientists as the cause, they were quoting scientists such as Hunt to prove blacks were inferior. And Hunt is not the only scientist who suggests this. Um, from their studies of evolution. Historian Richard Hofstetter writing about Darwin said this, although Darwinism was not the primary source of the belligerent ideology and dogmatic racism of the 19th century, it did become a new instrument in the hands of the theorists of race and struggle. The Darwinist mood sustained the belief in Anglo-Saxon racial superiority which obsessed many American thinkers in the, in the latter half of the 19th century. The measure of world domination already achieved by the race seemed to prove it the fittest. Activist Frederick Douglass knew that man, though, was clearly different when he writes, common sense itself is scarcely needed to detect the absence of a manhood in a monkey or to recognize its presence in the Negro. See, he understood the the Christian understanding of humanity, which is we are created in the image of God, and therefore everyone created in the image of God, um, is, is inherent value. Um, worldviews do make a difference, and they do have consequences. The educated not only supported racist theories, but they were also very instrumental in fueling the Third Reich atrocities. In a January 2018 article from the U.S. National Library of Medicine, they write this, I quote, Eugenics arose in the 19th century as a science that dealt with the improvement of hereditary qualities. Indeed, it was considered to be the leading cutting-edge science of the time, as it was developed and practiced in several countries. This included the United States, where scientists and politicians worked together to research and implement ways of decreasing the number of people considered to be hereditarily weak, an increasing number of people thought to be hereditarily strong. 
In some ways, U.S. eugenics programs served as models for the early eugenic uh, initiatives promulgated in Germany. Though the Nazi regime later made eugenics infamous through mass genocide, Britain and the United States also promoted policies to apply eugenics to social problems. Another uh, interesting um, author, Stephen Hicks, a historian, writes in his book, The Nietzsche and Nazis, wrote that German intellectuals and scientists read like a who's who list of powerful and cultural minds. He goes on to say that, and I quote, the primary cause of Nazism lies in philosophy, not economics, not psychology, and not even politics. And what was the philosophy um, that, that, that shaped the atheistic ideas here? It was the Christian-hating philosophy of Nietzsche. Now, this begs the question for many of you, didn't Hitler use the German church? Matter of fact, I've been told he's Christian. <laughs> well, yes, he did. But it was a church that was more bent on German nationalism than the cross of Christ, which Hitler and Nietzsche hated with a passion. This is my fear with much of the Western church's extreme desire to defend conservative politics and American nationalism rather than the gospel. I'm also aware that Nietzsche was not an anti-Semite. But his atheistic principles could fuel any regime looking for power, control, and superiority, as did Hitler's Third Reich. See, once again, ideas and ideologies have consequences. That the scientists, uh, the evolutionary scientists that worked towards race science and the eugenic scientists that worked towards what happened in Germany are part of the problem, part of the issues, because ultimately some of the base ideas of these have grave consequences. It is so easy to channel the Enlightenment credo that once religion is gone and people are educated, we'll live in uh, complete harmony with one another. But that narrative is wrong all too empty these past 300 years, as the good professor reminds us. Religion is waning in the West and has been for quite a while. But utopia doesn't appear to be around the corner anytime soon. While I believe there is some truth to Professor Zuckerman's point regarding the church being a horrible witness to the Jesus narrative with its marriage of conservative evangelical politics and its many pathetic transgressions, his narrative rests on studies that support his thesis and ignores studies and information that may prove his overall narrative false. The problem with Dr. Zuckerman fails to acknowledge is that when Christianity fails in these areas, it is failing their foundational beliefs. But when Stalin murdered 20 million of his own people, it was consistent with the red tooth and claw ethical foundation of atheism. Honest proponents of macroevolution, such as Thomas Huxley, realized this conundrum and wrote in his book, Evolution and Ethics, and he says this, and I quote, The propounders of what are called the ethics of evolution, when the evolution of ethics would usually better express the object of their speculations, adduce a number of more or less interesting facts and more or less sound arguments in favor of the origin of moral sentiments by a process of evolution. But, as the immoral sentiments have no less been evolved, there is so far as much natural sanction for the one as the other. Therefore, the thief and the murderer follow nature just as much as the philanthropist. Cosmic evolution may teach us how the good and evil tendencies of man may have come about, but in itself it is incompetent to furnish any better reason why what we call good is preferable to what we call evil than we had before. In other words, evolution may give sound arguments for the origin of morality, but it has no ability to define what good and evil are. The nation that the, excuse me, the notion that once society is educated, 
that they will cease to believe in the mythology of the existence of a God and become better people is not only nonsense, but it exposes the professor's ignorance of the role Christianity has played in the development of modern education and scientific pursuit. Among many non-religious scientists disagreeing with Dr. Zuckerman, decorated physicist Paul Davis, Davies is quoted in the New York Times article, Taking Science on Faith. This was in uh, 2007. He said this, and I quote, The very notion of physical law is theological one in the first place, a fact that makes many scientists squirm. Isaac Newton first got the idea of absolute, universal, perfect, immutable laws from the Christian doctrine that God created the world and ordered it in a rational way. Christians envision God as upholding the, the natural order from beyond the universe, while physicists think of their laws as inhabiting an abstract, transcendent realm of perfect mathematical relationships. Uh, Davies himself wrote as an agnostic um, in his 1984 book, God the New Physics, but if I understand, has uh, adopted some form of uh, deistic or some theistic um, point of view. Now, I'm not discussing this to prove or disprove God, evolution of science. I'm not discussing this to show that my documentation is final, because it most certainly is not. But it should give articles such as this one some pause. I'm discussing this because a noted professor can write an op-ed piece right before the most celebrated date on the Christian calendar and get away with a shoddy narrative based on opinion rather than facts, while ignoring any facts that might contradict his opinion. While none of these studies that I state or he states or anyone are conclusive, um... They are possible, and they do show there is a there is a, a debate within the scientific world. He simply ignores the studies that ostensibly demonstrate that religious people are happier, give more to charity, have happier and more successful marriages, and commit less suicide than the less religious or the nuns. And I want to, I want to take a look at these categories a little bit closer, and these are, these are categories that he mentioned. One, the idea of being happier or even healthier. Pew Research uh, released a study on January 31st of 2019, and they wrote this, I quote, studies have often credited religion with making people healthier, happier, and more engaged in their communities. But are religious people uh, better off than those who are religiously inactive or those with no religious affiliation? The short answer is there is some evidence that religious participation does make a difference in some, but not all of these areas. Now, they broke the, the, the people that they, they studied into three categories. One was inactive. Um, that was people that might have had uh, might have stated they were religious or might have stated they were part of a church, but really they had no affiliation with a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. While the next category, the active, had attended church, synagogue, or mosque on a regular basis, at least two to three times a month, and was very devout in their um, following of their religion. And the last category is the nuns. They 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 identified with no religion at all. While some would say they were spiritual, most of them were atheist or agnostic. Now, in the report, there was there's three interesting findings. One is that the active re- religious reported the most happy. So they reported themselves as very happy at 36%, whereas the nuns were at 25%. Um, secondly, there was no clear connection between active religious people and health, but the study did say that the active religious tend to eat better and drink and smoke less. And a third finding that I found interesting was the active religious are more apt than the nuns to join and or give to non-religious groups and charities. And this was quite a big chasm. Um, 58% of actives were more apt to give or join non-religious groups 
to the nuns, 39%. So I want to look at that as a second ca category, giving more to charity. Who does so? Well, um, first of all, what we find is giving comes from individuals, not the government or large corporations. Many people think, well, it, it's the government's job. But the fact of the matter is, that's, that's not how it has happened. Philanthropy Roundtable writes, it is easy to think of philanthropy as something done by the very wealthy or big foundations or prosperous com companies. But actually, of the $358 billion that Americans gave to charity in 2014, only 14% came from foundation grants, just 5% from corporations, and the rest, 81%, came from individuals. Um, what was also interesting in uh, this study on giving was Americans outgive their Canadian and continental European allies by a lot. Um, again, Philanthropy Roundtable in their study writes per capita, Americans voluntarily, um, excuse me, donate about seven times as much as continental Europeans. Even our cousins, the Canadians, give to charity at substantially lower rates and at half the total volume of American household. Now, this is interesting in that one atheist uh, in 2013 in his blog, The Friendly Atheist, uh, his name is Hemet Mehta, dismissed these findings uh, by saying it doesn't count since religious people tend to give to religious organizations. Um not only does this contradict the 2019 Pew Research study that says otherwise, uh, showing that active religious people also give more to non-religious groups than do the nuns, but it's also besides the point. So what if they did? Many of these religious organizations are doing great work. Organizations such as World Vision have been on the forefront of relief, and it still doesn't account for the miserly giving of nuns to non-religious organizations. As a matter of fact, the 2017 Philanthropy Panel Study, which is an ongoing project at the University of Indiana Lilly uh, Family School of Philanthropy and tracks U.S. household giving, seems to contradict Mr. Meadows' 2013 stats. They write this, and I quote, Not surprisingly, religious-affiliated households are much more likely than non-religious households to, to donate to religious institutions defined in the report as congregations, denominations, missionary societies, and religious media. But... Religious people also contribute to other types of charity at similar or higher rates than their secular counterparts. The report goes on to say, quote, There is a staggering difference between the charitable giving practices of the religiously affiliated and those with no re religious affiliation. While 62% of religious households give to charity, only 46% excuse me, only 46 of non-religious households do. And on the average, religiously affiliated households donate about $1,590 to charity annually, while households with no religious affiliation contribute uh, less than half of that at $695. Another attempt to mitigate the clear chasm in giving was Notre Dame's political science professor, Dave Campbell, who wrote an article in Time in 2013 admitting that religious people do clearly give more to charity than do non-religious people, but felt that the key wasn't religion, but the community religion creates. And he writes this, and I quote, Our findings thus suggest that if secular organizations could replicate this sort of tight, interlocking friendship networks found within religion, religious organizations, they too would spur a comparable level of charitable giving. At least some seculars have tried to do exactly this, exactly this by creating atheist churches that have the trappings of a religious congregation, weekly services, communal singing, and even a coffee hour, but minus the religious content. But then he says this, 
The jury is still out on whether such religion-less congregations can keep people coming, and if so, whether the social networks formed within an avowedly secular group can have the same effect on charitable giving. Well, I guess we shall see if they do. But eight years later, they have not. Another category that I thought was interesting is that religious people tend to have more successful family life. Now, that seems completely contradictory to a mantra that I have been, I bought at one time and restated many times until I realized I was dead wrong. And that mantra is that the divorce rate in the church is the same or worse than outside the church. Um, that's not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, the Institute for Family Research did a study that separated those that called themselves Christian, which was about 70% in the study, um, from those that consider themselves devout, which is about 34%. And the difference in the divorce rate was staggering. It dropped near, from nearly 50% to 34% amongst the devout. Still too high, but a lot less than the average. Also, according to Bradford Wilcox, a sociologist at the University of Virginia and director of the National Marriage Project, uh, finds from his own analysis that, and I quote, active conservative Protestants who regularly attend church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who have no affiliation. Nominally attending conservative Protestants are 20% more likely to divorce compared to secular Americans. That's pretty interesting. Those that just go to church every once in a while actually have a higher divorce rate than, um, than many of the secular, but those that actually are devout Protestants that go to church have a way lower divorce rate. The last statistic that I, I wanted to touch on, because I think it, it really does hit the idea of who's really happier, is uh, religious people tend to commit less suicide. In Science News in 2017, a Michigan State study says, at least in the United States, in many other countries' research, quote, I quote this, religious participation is linked to lower suicide rates in many parts of the world, including the United States and Russia, but does not protect against the risk of suicide in sections of Europe and Asia, according to new research. Now, that's interesting because the good doctor highlights um, quite a bit that Europe, I mean, Europe is really one of these, these places that are really godless in the sense of not many people going to church, not many people are affiliated, um, and yet uh, they stand as the the highest uh, region in the world of suicides. Um, in some of the more religious countries that you would think of, uh, like a, a, a Saudi Arabia or something like that, are actually very, very low. Um, so that's, that's a very interesting statistic. Um, Dr. Zuckerman also ignores scholarly peer-reviewed papers, such as the University of Baylor's Robert Woodbury's article, in the American Political Science Review that connects sincere Christian missionary action to democracy, better education, and health services around the world. He also ignores atheists, fellow atheists like Matthew Paris, who seems to echo this sentiment in his article in the London Times entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. Mr. Paris had grown up in Africa, but had left and been gone for about 30 years when he returned and realized that, that religion, and particularly Christianity, was very, very good for Africa. My issue in showing these facts is not to be the final word in this discussion, but to show that the good doctor's matter-of-fact statements are actually baseless, and if nothing else, should have given him pause to write such an op-ed. In my blog article on, on my Jesus Culture site, um, I link some of the info that I'm posting this podcast, and I will try to also link some of what I've um, quoted 
in my YouTube channel. I certainly don't expect this would be conclusive for anyone reading this, nor should it be. But what I do know is that that baseless narratives like Dr. Zuckerman's pose here are not only nonsense, but they, um, but they can be dangerous. Uh, vehement Christian hater Voltier, writing to Christian ministers, his quote fits really well here. He says, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Because once you vilify a group of people as being uneducated, backwards, hateful, it is easy then to look the other way when statements that offend that community are made which is what we see on the regular in regard to faith in Jesus. And yes, I know and I've followed and really loved John Stewart's humor. Um, he, he, as an atheist, John Stewart uh, had that humorous quip in regard to Christians complaining about this. And he says, yes, the long war in Christianity. I pray that one day we live in an America where Christians can worship freely in broad daylight, openly wearing the symbols of their religion, perhaps around their necks, and maybe, dare I dream it, maybe one day there can be an openly Christian president, or perhaps 43 of them consecutively. Now, that's definitely funny, and I get what he's saying. Um, that's, that's true. I think a lot of times there's, 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 there's a persecution complex out there. But that notwithstanding, it is far easier to get away in these days publicly taking shots at Christians. Like Sarah Silverman's comment on a popular show, that Christians are bleep, bleep crazy without any backlash at all for the events. I don't think that'd be true for many groups. And skeptic, please, I'm not whining, so get off it. Religion, and particularly Christianity in America, deserve a fair amount of the criticism it receives from the culture. I myself will even be critical about it on this site. But false narratives are always dangerous no matter who they target. Maybe we should become people that are better than this. I believe that Professor Zuckerman wrote with a gracious stroke. It was often complimentary and even credited religion for being benevolent and giving. But I will say, these numbers are dated in some ways and they're waning. Because according to one report, millennials, the next generation, are not following their religious parents' um, faith. Nor are they following it in giving. But they are leading in one category, becoming nuns which according to Dr. Zuckerman is apparently a good thing. Thanks for joining us today. I'm very happy that you did. Um, if you're interested, obviously um, send the podcast uh, or the, the YouTube to uh, your friends. Um, subscribe to the YouTube channel and to the podcast. Thank you so much. Have a great day. God bless.